also in Rome. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you, as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than forty of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready two hundred soldiers with seventy horsemen and two hundred spearmen and go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Quote, Claudius Lysias, to His Excellency the Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon him with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with them. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Please be seated. And footnote, 40 men starved to death. (laughs) No, they didn't. We'll get that out of the way first. They took a vow not to eat until, but there was a provision. They could go give some extra offerings and sacrifices in the temple. And so they had a hearty meal. They were just mad at, at Paul. So uh, um, when we were kids, we always laughed about that. Those guys uh, not eating, but uh, they didn't mean it when they said it. They just wanted to show their seriousness in wanting to have Paul killed. Let's pray and ask God to help us in this sermon. Thank you, Lord, today for your word. 
Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Please help us as we uh, encounter you in your word today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As I said, I'm listening to a book while I'm driving. Got it on compact disc. It just comes on when I start the car. It's gone when I'm done. I can't um, focus too intently on that or or I would uh, uh, probably end up uh, in in some mechanic shop or someplace I didn't want to be. But I listen while I drive and it floats in on me. It's a book by a guy named Rick Atkinson. It's uh, uh, the third of a three-part series called the Liberation Trilogy and it's the World War II from 44 to 45. And you hear a lot about the liberation of little towns in France and those types of things. It's very interesting. He's a great writer. Uh, and there's a lot of times where I say, man, I wish I could had, a, had the book in front of me. I could write it down and, and, and take a quote because this jumps out and that jumps out. But one thing I heard, he was talking about one of the generals in, or, or one of the, um, the officers, I think it was Teddy Roosevelt's son who was... Uh, who was fighting and killed at the start of it. But in that section, as he was talking about him and and, and some of the maneuvers, he said uh, something like this. Effective leadership for officers is merely doing normal things during abnormal times when everyone around you is losing their head. Effective leadership, uh, this is from the War College for, for these generals, when it's abnormal times and everybody's losing their head, it's not extraordinary things to do. It's just doing the normal things during abnormal times. And I thought about that in our own situation where we have some uh, abnormal times, at least for American Christians. I thought about this in Paul's situation where Paul was facing something different for him. It was abnormal, but he was doing normal things. Uh, I will adapt it like this. If you are striving to be some super Christian, some extraordinary Christian, I want to be an extraordinary Christian. I want to be a cut above the rest. I want God to notice me. I want to have a ministry or whatever it is we say. Um, You know what? That doesn't cut it. I think you're probably headed for trouble. Just do normal Christian things during abnormal times. What's a Christian do? That's what you do. Let God sort out how he uses that or or doesn't. I wrote, uh, as I was preparing this, these may not be abnormal times in other parts of the world, but for Americans, therefore for American Christians, these are abnormal times. Uh, We know that there have always been sinners. We know that people have always... um, Not every single person that's ever lived has been as wicked as they possibly could be. That's not the definition of total depravity. But we do know that there have been some bad things done. It just seems like it has metastasized with the Internet. Bad people find each other. They join up quicker. Uh, acceleration during the down a path of, of sinfulness where it, it used to take sometimes if you entered this path of, uh, and you would you would decelerate and your heart would get hardened and you would you would get numb uh, um, as, as 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 James Dobson in an interview I saw with with him with Ted Bundy on on before Ted Bundy was executed on pornography and the subtitle of that of that talk was called pornography 
addictive, progressive, and deadly. Um, there's a faster path to that than there used to be because of technology and things. Technology is good. Times it's bad at times, um, but we are living in tough times. Weapons that can kill more people quicker. Um, so we can honestly say, I believe these are abnormal times. There is less, while, while America was not a quote-unquote Christian nation that everybody was a Christian, uh, there was a religious veneer at least, and there was a, a little bit of a holding. Um, now there's less of a holding pattern. There's less of a, of a cultural thing. In fact, the cultural norms are, are the opposite. Somebody said, what, what, what kind of a world do we live in? Uh, good is evil, and evil is good. Um, so we have these, what could be considered abnormal times, at least for those of us who were kids in the, you know, uh, a, a, a while back, uh, that maybe we thought it was just always going to be same as it ever was, same as it ever was. It's not. How do we live as Christians? Uh, well, we still keep joyful. That song we just sang, I'm like, I kind of choke on the words I'm happy all the day because I know I'm not. <laughs> and, and so I, I want to try and change those words. But I am, I, I do get pretty happy when I can come back to the cross and remind me, you know, so I, I, as long as I'm doing that, so I kind of throw a qualifier in my head when I get to that, that chorus because I love the verses. I just would probably want to change the chorus a little bit to make it more reflective. Um, I should be happy all the day, or I can be happy all the day when I'm blah, 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 but then that wouldn't fit into a song, would it? But um, we, we live, and we think, and we have times. Uh, think about Paul right now. This was not normal for Paul's missionary journey. Paul was under guard. Uh, it'd be like, on the one hand, he'd faced mobs before. He'd had people that didn't like him, like we see in our streets, uh, oh, some kids down in North Texas just wanted to have a prayer vigil for, for pro-life. And a hundred thugs showed up to shout them down and threaten them and follow them to their cars and dox them and, and all that. Well, Paul had faced that kind of a thing. He'd, he'd seen the thugs on the streets protesting him and trying to shout him down. But this is uh, the difference between locked up in the county jail and federal prison. And so it was different for him. It was an abnormal time for him. And here he was um, with God's promise to him. Uh, the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, because just as you've testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, you will go to Rome. So Paul is here in abnormal times. How does Paul just act like a normal Christian? That would be helpful for us to think about, because uh, during our own set of abnormal times, how do we do normal Christian things? So there's three sets of questions this morning, just three groups. I didn't, um, I wasn't smart enough, and I didn't really have, you know, didn't, didn't get out Rohe's Theosaurus and, uh, and try and alliterate them and come up, so there's no clever uh, alliteration but there's three groups of questions, three sets of questions. It's organized, this sermon is organized around those three. And the first one is, does the magnitude of the problem affect the outcome if God's promise is at stake? 
does the magnitude of the problem affect the outcome if God's promise is at stake? God's promise. Paul, you're going to go to Rome and you're going to tell about me in Rome. That's your dream. That's what I've called you to do. And don't worry. Take courage, he said, as he stood there with him. Uh, You will do this. What if there had been 400 men instead of 40? Well, if I got 40 people lying in wait, going to be snipers and take a shot at me while, while, the, uh, while they've, they've lied and, and, and said they want to re-examine me, <laughs> the Pharisees and the Sadducees said, okay, well, we won't fight this time. We really, this time we really mean it. Bring him back. And, and so they were in on it too at the higher echelons. But as he was going, coming in, it's like, like those movies you see. And you know what's going to happen because they're all the same, but it's still dramatic. You know, they've got the cop car, they've got the guy in the back of it strapped in, you know, and they've got all these cop cars. But you know the people that are going to get him in order to make it a, an interesting movie are going, to, are going to get him. And the question as you watch the movie is how. These people were going to be lined up and they were going to jump out and they were going to get him. And it was all a plot. If it had been 400 men, would God have said, oh no, we've got a problem. If it had been four men, could he have sent some angel in training down to, to solve the problem? Was 40 just about right for God? Or does the magnitude of the problem, if God has made the promise, does the magnitude of the problem really matter to God? Rhetorical question. Of course it doesn't. God can handle four, 40, 400, 4,000, 4 million. God's made a promise. Then God is the one with the power to keep the promise. There's an old phrase they used to say. Short people say this sometimes. You used to hear that. It's not the size of the dog in the fight. It's the size of the fight in the dog. Uh, it's, not, it's not how big you are. It's not if you can see God or not. It's not, you know, it's, 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 it's how, where's the power? I used to love this phrase as a little kid. I'd see these little t-shirts. and I lived in, in Christian t-shirt land, I guess, in that era and in that Christian culture. And it wasn't so bad. And I would see that phrase that said, you plus God is a majority. And I remember maybe I was about Caleb's age and I started thinking about that. I thought, that's pretty cool. You plus God is a majority. Me and God, uh, that's a majority. If I'm on, you know, If it's me and God together, then I don't have to worry. Series of questions. Does the magnitude of the problem affect the outcome if God's promise is at stake? We see this in Scripture. Here's little little David, the shepherd boy, out there watching and Goliath's taunting, and and, and he must have been threatening. He must, must have been a real fear. You know, it wasn't like, you know, WWE something. You know, it wasn't, you know, that guy, you know, yelling taunts. Uh, this was Goliath, enough to make soldiers, committed soldiers who were fighting for their families, cower in fear and run. And David says, you know, by God's grace, I'm going to take him on. And Herod, uh, not Herod, Saul said, uh, are you sure? He says, well, you know, the Lord helped me with the lion. The Lord helped me with the bear. And I think the Lord can help me defeat this enemy of of, of God's people. And so you see progression. And you see God 
You know, I would think a lion and a bear would be tough enough. But you see a progression. Uh, You can see it's not the battle. It's not the obstacle. It's God's promise and God's ability to keep God's promise. Jesus in the New Testament. It's a great story. They, uh, I believe this is where they lowered the roof. It happened a couple of times. And I'm thinking of the time where Jesus is teaching to lower the roof. The, the friends, they, they, they dig a hole through the, the tiles. It was a flat roof because they'd go up there in the evenings. And you've heard all the sermons about that. But they lowered him down. And they wanted him to heal him. And he goes, your sins are forgiven. <laughs> they go, who can say that? Jesus said, well, what difference does it make if I say, take up your bed and walk or your sins are forgiven? To me, because I'm God, uh, you might consider this a harder problem. To forgive sins, only God alone can do that, they rightly said. God doesn't say this is too big of a problem for me or this is too easy for me. God's promise and God's plan for God's people and we're okay. Forty men, four hundred men, four men, doesn't matter if God's in it and God made the promise, you will go to Rome. So there was no, no jeopardy for, for Paul. Now, to make an application to us and to our salvation, which sins is it harder for God to forgive? Which ones does he really have to work? What kind of a sinner? What kind of a sin background? How many sins? How many, you know? Uh, boy, if we had, a, if we had a, a little number and all that, and it was registered, and, and boy, each person, like, I think we, we would be blown away by the number of, it's just the sheer number of our sins, like what we would call white lies and all that stuff. Um, we, I, we would be overwhelmed and flabbergasted by, by how much sinning we did. And you could say probably the oldest among us probably has the most. That's how it goes. Um, Because we've lived longer. We start and we do. Um, Does God say, once you hit that threshold, that's my cutoff. It's like a golf tournament. And here's the cutoff. Uh, Who gets to golf on on the weekend? If you don't make the golf tournament and uh, and get under par by such and such a a place... uh, Can God not save you out of your sins, no matter what they are? Even if dumb people like me categorize them and say this one's worse and this one's not as bad and this one, you know. For one, I'm I'm a pretty unreliable. The ones that I struggle with, I'm going to go lighter on because they're they're mine. I kind of like myself. And I might go heavier on yours, especially if you've got a different personality than me. And I might say yours are the worst. Well, no, they're just the ones that, that I don't like so much. But does God make a distinction? God is not powerless. If God says, I'm the forgiver of sins, then God's a forgiver of sins. No distinction. There's no one that God cannot save. Jesus made a promise. Everyone who the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, listen to this promise, whoever comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Promise. Promise to Paul. So I I just want us to see this in this part of the sermon. That there is no 
problem that if God has promised to deliver his people from, there's no problem that he can't solve, that he can't overcome. Next, consider God's methods as a problem solver. With this in the back of our mind, God's methods. Uh, because or since there's no problem too big for God, does it matter or should it matter to us how God chooses to fight his and our battles? How about God's methods? In this case, it was Paul's nephew who overheard the plot. You wonder, what brought the nephew into a place? Paul had at least one sister. We, we know that now from Scripture. We, we could speculate that he probably did because there were uh, larger families, it seems like, in those days from history. He had a sister. And the sister was involved in his life. And the nephew was there. God had the nephew overhear the plot. What if the alarm clock had gone off an hour later that day? What if he'd stayed up the night before, you know, uh, doing something and slept in? Uh, what if he missed overhearing that? Uh, what if he'd gone a different route to do his chores? What, what, what is God supernaturally, so, sovereignly wanted to deliver Paul from this plot this way, and so God ordained everything to happen to fall into place this way. God could have done it anyway. He chose this way. God's way of saving his people is as varied as the troubles he saves them from. I listed some. You could list hundreds more from your knowledge of scriptures. But I thought about God's way of saving his people. A tent peg driven like the stake through the temple of a sleeping enemy. Here's this big battle and all these people are trying to fight. And here's this woman named Yael. And here's the king, the, the wicked, terrible king. He comes in, uh, le the leader of the army. And he comes in and, and he asks for water. And she's so nice she gives him milk. He says... I need a beer. She goes, how about champagne? Okay. He lays down and sleep, feels. And then, boom, God used her to kill that wicked man. Side note, when I was a youth pastor, uh, Paul and I, that she wasn't in our church, but she would come to our youth group things. We had a girl that would come to our youth group events, and her parents named her Yael after this woman. They, they said, what's a good biblical name to name our daughter? How about Yael? We want her to be the kind of woman who would drive a stake through a, 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 a wicked enemy of God's head. And so we would have the lock-ins. I'd like, check Yael's bag. We don't want any knives or weapons in that one. But um, God can do that to save his people. A woman, uh, just a, a throwaway story almost, but it's not because it's scripture, throws a millstone over a wall at, at, at quote-unquote random and hits a guy, and, and then the, the war is solved. God delivers his people with a jar of oil that will never run out. He delivers his people by birds bringing bread to Elijah by the brook. And as a kid, I was like, where'd they get the bread? God delivers his people, the daughter-in-law named Ruth, the kinsman redeemer named Boaz, a donkey that talked, a big fish that could swallow a man whole, yet with a digestive system that didn't uh, eat him alive while he was in there and then spit him out at God's command. God can deliver any way God wants to deliver. If God says, I make a promise, 
I'm God. I can deliver. He can do whatever way. His business. Dream warning. God could have delivered Paul in this situation. He could have turned these 40 men into the gang that couldn't shoot straight. Could have stricken them with blindness like he did in other groups of men and you see that have come to attack God's people. Guess I wrote this one late at night. He could have dropped an endless supply of banana peels or turned the road into a sheet of ice. He could, however God wanted to do it. Uh, whatever funny way we can imagine, whatever serious way we can imagine, he could have dropped sulfur. He could have. No, he chose Paul's nephew to overhear the plot. And that's how God chose to solve the problem. Why? We can only speculate. Maybe there was coming a time in that nephew's life and that nephew was going to be under severe persecution and on the run around A.D. 70. And, and maybe that nephew needed to be part of seeing that. And, and so God could have been playing the long game, which God does. Plays a long game and a short game in every game. It's God's. We don't know. But we do know that God... Oh, here's the, I'll, I'll make, make it a question like I wrote. In this world, can God save whoever God wants to save? Yes. But does he use his people to plant and water? Well, he says he does, so that's the ordinary way. I planted it, Apollos watered, God gave the increase. But God can save Paul with a blinding light and a voice that only Paul can hear. Paul, God, God, when God wants to save a person's soul, he can save a person's soul. So you're in the hospital, and a loved one is on her deathbed. And she has, all while she's been conscious uh, and talking to you, she's rejected the faith, at least to your face. And she's there in her coma. I've given this advice back when I was in the church. We had a lot of people in the hospital. It was a big enough church, and I was the hospital guy. Um, what do you do for that woman? Don't start crying yet that she's in hell. Go sit with her. Go read the scriptures to her. We don't know what she can hear and not hear. We don't know what God's doing. Was God ministering to her? God can save how God wants to save. It's never over for anyone until it's over. We don't even know what God does it. All we know is that God saves through Jesus Christ and, and, and them as, 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 as their sins being paid for, as Jesus as their substitute, and God can save. Ordinarily, it's his people sharing the gospel in the context of their lives through prayer, through teaching their kids, through uh, those types of things, through churches that are planted and, and attracting people. And God, But God can save anybody with the method he wants to save him. However God does a thing, it's right. So Paul's sister's son learned something because that's how God chose to save. And then same category of questions regarding God's saving. What about Paul? If, God, if Paul really believed in God's promises, why did he bother to get the nephew's story told? Why didn't he just sit there in kind of a serene, wise way and say, ah, go home. God's already made me that promise. 
go home. I, you know, thanks for telling me, but God's going to deliver me from these 40 men. What did Paul do? No, he, he grabbed him. You tell him, you tell him, you tell him. Uh, Paul was active, even though it was a foregone conclusion that Paul would preach in Rome. Did Paul lack faith then by using human means to, to, to do this? I would say no. Scripture says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who's at work in you to will and to do and to work his good pleasure. We do what normal Christians do in abnormal times. You know, say, well, God will do it. It's been a while since some of you heard about the uh, Calvinist farmer and the hyper-Calvinist farmer. We talk about hyper-Calvinist. That's somebody that says uh, it's borderline fatalism. Although somebody said a hyper-Calvinist, the definition is anybody who's more Calvinist than you are. Um, But uh, uh, we're talking about fatalism, and we're talking about how almost we can say it's all fatalist, and so it doesn't matter. And so the Calvinist farmer says, i got to rotate my crops. There's these seasons that God gives. This is harvest time. If I put soybeans here, these couple years I better put corn here because of the roots and science informs me of this and I need to, and in the end he gets done and he says, wow, God gave what God gave. And the hyper-Calvinist sits on his porch and said, I believe God will give what God will give and he just sits there. And what does he get? So Paul knew. Paul knew God was going to save. Paul knew that had the nephew not heard this, that there was going to be a different way of salvation. But boy, you, you do and you act as a responsible person in the world, even as you trust God. They used to say this phrase, and it's, it's mostly right, but not all right. They used to say, um, work like it all depends on you, but pray like it all depends on God. And I would say the biblical way to, to say that is, is, Work like it all depends on God and pray like it all depends on God, but work. It's a good way to say it, I think. Um, So we see God powerful enough to keep his promises and to save. And God being in charge of how the saving is done and the delivering is done. We would never have come up with this whole idea of what we sang about in our song earlier, about God becoming perfectly God, perfectly man, writing himself into the script of this world, living a perfect life and dying for our sins. We would never have dared to, we wouldn't have even thought of it, I don't think. And if we had thought of it, we wouldn't have dared to suggest that God dies on our behalf. God's plan and God's choice, God's way of saving. And it's good because it's God. Last one, I wanted to just make sure because I'm trying to do some self-correcting in in, in my own life. And and so this group of questions is more along the lines, we're preaching through acts, we're seeing things happen in our country, we're seeing, you know, religious freedom go away, more of a hostility and all that. But we need to ask ourselves this, and I've got to help, I need need help on this. Is the whole world against Christians? Christians? Seems like it here. You had these 40 men. You had uh, organized religion uh, tied in with it. Uh, and it just seems like, and we know Jesus said, if they did this to me, what are they going to do to you and all that? But boy, we can come up with this horrible 
phrase it this way, I can come up with this horrible martyr persecution complex. I can stop seeing the joy and beauty in the world for all of the, oh, it's all lined up again. So how do we prepare the people? You know, and, and, and Jesus' case, boy, the, 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 the people were lined up. It was religious leadership, which was their culture in that day. It was their secular government that did the uh, carrying it out, but even the rank-and-file people were prompted to yell, crucify him, crucify him, give us Barabbas, give us Barabbas. And so sometimes it seems like there are cycles in history where all the forces are together lined up. But then you can look at this passage here, and we look at our lives. Not everyone everywhere is rabidly anti-Christian and, and, and automatically your enemy. Uh, we're not going to start selling T-shirts with a bullseye on them that say, shoot me, I'm a Christian. Uh, not going to do that, although I've known a guy who did sell those and knew people who bought them and wore them. Um, but the fact of the matter is, uh, God has people in the world, and through, we can see that through Scripture, that though they are not Christians, they are not hostile. Not everyone. And so so don't let, because we're preaching through Acts, and don't let me and my, my paranoia... Uh, sometimes uh, affect you. There, there are people in the world, well, yeah, in their heart and nature right now, they are by nature children of wrath, they're enemies of God, but they are not, you know, with a gun in their pocket saying, let's shoot Christians. Here, 40 men tied in with the religious leadership of the day, and it's a plot, and they're both, they're all involved. But here's a Roman leader who says, let's get him to safety. We're not going to deliver him. We're not going to go along with it. Now, the funny thing in this letter, and then we've got to get back to the sermon and, and, and wrap it up. The funny thing, did you notice in the letter that he wrote, if you remember the story from last week, this guy wrote the letter. He said, oh, and I found out he was a Roman citizen, so I saved him. That's not true. He was going to put him on the rack, remember, and then Paul had to. But he covered, he wrote a letter that flattered himself. It's just kind of a a picture of human nature, and we all do this kind of thing, and they do it through history. But he went to save him. Think in the Bible about people that God has used who've been friendly to Christians, even though they were not themselves God's people. A couple of them. Cyrus returned the people. Cyrus was never in the Old Testament Uh, known as a Christian, but Cyrus was a leader with power, and he restored God's people. He was in favor of them. I think of um, uh, the king in Esther. was Ahasuerus, I think was his name. Think about him. Um, And God used Esther and Mordecai and God's people. This guy doesn't say he ever became God's person, but he gave an edict that saved God's people. Um, God's people have found favor in the world, and God has given favor. So uh, we don't have to, we, we do have to, we do have to say there's two kinds of people in the world, believers and non-believers. But we don't have to take a posture of, of hatred and enmity toward everyone who's not a Christian. Uh, in fact, we can pray, we don't even know. And God's saving people all the time and, and giving them citizenship in heaven, adopting them into our family. I enjoyed a couple things about my day yesterday afternoon when I went and watched watched the uh, great uh, the great Pele 
Annabelle play soccer. <laughs> it was fun. Oh, she got a hold of one, and, and, and she was mostly a defender, but boy, she got the ball, and she was running down, and I was watching, and she was looking for someone open to pass to, and, and, and at that stage, they're, they're, they're not playing pack ball yet, but they're getting, but, but, and they're developing, and, and she had a good little run, but you know what I loved? I loved sitting with Pat and Sandy. I loved hearing all these parents cheering for all these girls on both teams because they've known them through all their things, and I didn't hear anything politics I didn't hear anything. Uh, I didn't hear. I just, I just saw people. And it's like that was a good day. And as Christians, we can be salt and light, not always with a chip on our shoulder and not always thinking we're great culture warriors and analyzing everything. That's me. Uh, forgive me if I overbear on some of that sometimes. Be prepared and understand uh, leadership and understand laws and understand things. But in the end, we live as Christians in salt and light in the world and God uses us and just live, do the ordinary things that people do and do ordinary things that Christians do and let God uh, bear the burdens that, that, that you might be wanting to take on. Love God. Trust him as Savior. And realize that he's at work and that even non-believing humans can deliver and do deliver his grace. Conclusion, application, just two, two things that I want just to just to think about as, as, we, as we wrap this up. The one is, while we know that God is the deliverer and God can deliver any way he wants, there's one thing and the most important thing for any of us where everything had to be just right. And it was just right. And I'm talking about the ultimate salvation. That thing where God says, if he gave us his son, won't he freely give us all things? I'm not talking about the all things now. As he gives us all things, boy, there's a variety of ways he gives us all things and gives us what we need and all that. But his son, uh, Acts 4, 11, and 12 uh, sums this up. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And here's the kicker. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And that salvation of your soul happened one way, through Jesus Christ. No one comes to the Father except through him. And it was perfect. Oh, it was perfect. How perfect? The more you think about it, the more you understand theology and read your scriptures and think about yourself and think about God and think about how perfection is, is, is God and how we are not that way and we're born this way. And, and you go, how could there have been any other way? And God chose it to be that way. Praise his name and praise the Jesus who died for us. And then in a practical way, as we live as Christians, uh, how then do we live as Christians in these abnormal times? You want to be a super Christian? Just do normal Christian things. What are normal Christian things? Pray. Talk, talk, just talk to God. Pray. Read your Bible that he's given you. Confess your sins when you've got to fight with your husband or wife and, and, and make things right. Confess, you know, if you if you catch yourself uh, um, 
sinning, say, boy, this is not a good thing. I don't want to do this. But just do normal Christian things, the things that the Bible tells us to do. You'll be a super Christian. Keep your eyes on the ultimate destination without getting bogged down by this one. And yet love every good and perfect gift that God's given you here. It just seems so simple and it's so ordinary things. That's what Christians do. We don't have to come up with some massive scheme and get our pictures on some Christian magazine that we did this or did that. Who cares? Or as Jesus said, and we'll, we'll think about this as we, as we go to the table, um, let your light shine before people in such a way they see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Just live. Live for God. God says, here's a way to be close. Just do those ordinary, normal things. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this story of this extraordinary time that Paul lived in. Thank you for the reminder that you delivered and you're the one. And you delivered in your chosen way. We thank you that we, your people, who you love so much, Thank you that we, your people, can trust you. Lord, help all of us, including me, to live with our fears and to not let the fears be our God. Lord, thank you that you are our God. Thank you for sunshine you give us. Thank you for food you feed us with. Thank you for clothes. Thank you for relationships you give us in your body. Thank you how all these good things point us to heaven. And we thank you that no matter what happens, there's heaven on the other side of this. And and everything we know about that place that you've gone to prepare for us, Jesus, that place, God, where, where you dwell is good. And we get to go there. And we thank you for that. So help us with our joy and, and help us with each other and help us with our mission. And Lord, we pray that you keep us doing ordinary Christian things in our life. In Jesus' name, amen.